Influencing popular culture, politics, and everything in between. The local station takes you ringside as we discuss the crazy world that is professional wrestling. This is Going Ringside with The Local Station. Hello there, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Going Ringside. If you're watching in order, this is episode 37. So glad you could be with us today, and I'm excited. we got a packed show, some important, very current stuff, and some important stuff that I think is very historical in the world of wrestling. On the current side, we're going to be talking later on in the show about John Cena and whether or not he has had his final match. There's been a lot of talk in the last few days for what happened this past week in a crown jewel in Saudi Arabia. I do want to once again remind you to give us a follow at, at Going Ringside on TikTok and Instagram. For instance, I want to show you this that we put on TikTok at, at Going Ringside immediately after John Cena lost his match in Saudi Arabia. So we put that out there because there's a lot of talk on if John Cena has had his final match based on what happened at Crown Jewel this past weekend. So later on in the show, if you want to scroll ahead, we are going to have an in-depth discussion about John Cena's status in the world of wrestling and if he's going back to Hollywood forever and never going to set foot in the squared circle again. We'll have a deep debate on that later on in the show. But I am excited about our subject, and I want you to hear me out on it. It is a topic that I think is really one of the most fascinating stories in the history of pro wrestling. And when I say it, you're probably going to maybe roll your eyes and go, really? But they really interesting story, and that's the story of the Bushwhackers. Now hear me out why I say this. The Bushwhackers are an example of taking something that you might think is just comedic sideshow and making major, major success in the world of pro professional wrestling. The Bushwhackers had been wrestling, I think, since the 1960s in some fashion. They started as the Kiwis in New Zealand and then eventually became the Sheep Herders nationally and internationally. But I want, I want to start here talking about their peak time in WWF as the Bushwhackers and why I think they are an important story. We're going to have Bushwhacker Luke, the remaining Bushwhacker who's still living, uh, join us here later on in the show. So stay tuned for that. But before we get to Luke, I want to set up why I think they're important, uh, iconic, and maybe a good lesson for wrestlers. Because when you think of wrestling and the people that you talk about and the people that they get the major pops, the major cheers, you think of the, the top men, the top women, the top tag team. And let, let me stick with tag team because Bushwhackers are a tag team. You would think of the Road Warriors. You would think of the Hart Foundation back in their day. Later on, you would think of the Hardy Boys, uh, maybe members uh, of modern day with New Day and different uh, tag team factions that are out there today. And they get good pops. They're very popular. The Bushwhackers were not a top tag team. They were not the team that you expected to win if they went against another named team. Their contemporaries being Money, Inc. with DiBiase and Rotunda, uh, the, the um, natural disasters with Earthquake and Typhoon, people like that. And you usually expected the Bushwhackers would lose. And they, I think there was a very famous scene in one of the Royal Rumbles where Bushwhacker Luke walked out of the ring doing the whoa, yay, that they're known for, 
walks in, gets knocked out immediately, and never stops walking. He was only in it for four seconds. He goes, whoa, yay! Like he didn't, he was too dumb was his character to even know he'd been in the match. So they were a hokey sideshow comedy act. But they were an extremely, extremely successful one. In all the promos, in all the commercials, they had some iconic ones with Mean Gene out on the scene. And those are memorable and still played to this day. And if you don't think that they were over, I want to show you two examples of why the Bushwhackers were an incredibly successful team. 1994, they're in the company. They've been kind of the corny gimmick, and kids loved them. You know, we asked, I asked them about the whole thing with the woe and the yay and the going down and licking each other and the licking of the children who would stick their heads out, and it just looked weird. And in 2023, it wouldn't work, but in 1993, it did. And if you go back and watch a Bushwhackers match, watch the entrance when they come down to the ring and their music starts. Watch the crowd response and watch what kids are doing. I remember doing this when I was a kid. A lot of kids, it was just corny, goofy. It really didn't make any sense, but it's what the Bushwhackers did. And the kids love them. And consider, you know, we think of the Attitude Era in the 90s. We think what the modern era is today. And maybe think it's more, you know, the guys in their mid-20s or the target audience. That wasn't the case back then. The target audience of WWF when the Bushwhackers were there were children and families. It was essentially family entertainment. Vince McMahon on the back of Hulk Hogan in the 1980s turned it into a cartoonish spectacle that could appeal to children, could appeal to young families, and they were doing it. And the Bushwhackers did it. And they did it very, very well. The first example I want to show you of how successful they were involves another name you might remember from that era who was not in wrestling. Steve Urkel. So the reason why I bring that up, I'm bringing up the old sitcom that was on ABC for many years and eventually CBS of Family Matters with Steve Urkel. And you may think about that and just think it's corny and Urkel was a corny character and look back. Oh, Steve Urkel, Jaleel White in the early 90s was mainstream top level TV star. That was a big hit for ABC. Uh, Jaleel White was a mainstream celebrity, A-list celebrity at, at his peak. He was very good and very successful. And children and families across the country tuned into his show every week. They, I'm sure they got ratings just as much as uh, anything WWF did with a totally different fan base. And so they had an episode in 1994 where they were going to have Steve Urkel wrestle. So consider likely what's going on at this point going into this show. The producers of Family Matters and the producers at ABC think we want to do this corny thing where Steve Urkel has to get in a wrestling ring. So they do this and they're like, well, we're going to contact, we're going to reach out to WWF. They're the primary company in the world right now and see if they could offer some wrestlers that could maybe come on the show, give us a little spike in ratings and, and work well, someone who's instantly recognizable. So this is 1994. So who would you think the WWF would offer? They could offer Bret Hart. He was at the top of his game at this point. I think Shawn Michaels was starting to come into his own. The Undertaker, I think Yokozuna was, might be world champion at this point. You have guys like that. But that's not who they chose. 
They chose the corny team of the Bushwhackers. That was a business decision for WWF because they knew the Bushwhackers were incredibly popular with kids and families. They knew they were immediately recognizable. In fact, on the episode I'm going to show you here in a second, the quick clip, they introduced them as the Bushwhackers. They don't come up with some fake name because they were A-list in wrestling. Everyone knew who they were. They were immediately recognizable. Their stick of whoa and yay and just being corny was immediately known. So that's why WWF, when they talked to ABC, and they probably were having meetings on who they could offer up to go guest star on a primetime ABC show that was A-list, top-level sitcom at the time, they sent the Bushwhackers. Here's a quick clip. So they introduced themselves as the Bushwhackers, because everyone knows the Bushwhackers. And they went on, they had a full match with Urkel on that episode. You can check it out on Max, which is where uh, Family Matters is streamed now. Um, but that is a lot of faith WWF corporate had to put them on a scripted sitcom that's a prime. This is not a, a third-rate sitcom. Family Matters, this is their peak. This is when they're big-time TV. And they knew there were going to be a lot of eyeballs on it. Um, and there were. But if you think that's not an indicator, maybe that was a one-off, it shows that it doesn't show everything. They were really trusted by WWF, and they were really over with families. Why do you ask? So I'm watching old 1994 Monday Night Raw in the last year. And at the very end, they do a segment, a, just a taped video segment that Vince McMahon uh, introduces, because Vince is the announcer at this point on Raw. And he talks about going to the White House for the White House Easter egg roll, the White House Easter egg hunt. If you're not familiar with that, it's kind of an American tradition. They do every year at Easter where they put, they have, they invite a huge amount of children to the White House. It's kind of a non-political event where the, usually the president, the first lady comes out, greets all the children, and they just have a big old party. And, and there are cameras there, particularly consider this is 1994. They have cameras there, and it's, it's put on every news broadcast in America as a nice, funny, uh, fun, happy story. Look what happened to the White House. And take a look at that. Butch and Luke, the White House Easter egg roll. Oh my goodness. The Bushwhackers on hand, ladies and gentlemen. Oh, socks the cat. Hey, how about that? Hey, check that oh, out. Catnip. So notice that they uh, licked the cat. We're going to get to that point in a bit. Um, socks the cat. But the fact that they sent them to the White House to be brand ambassadors for the company at this point shows, A, they're incredibly over, BWWF knew how over they were with kids, and they trusted to put them. They could have sent someone else, but they sent the Bushwhackers, and the Bushwhackers were there. Even though they're this corny team that usually gets beat and is kind of a sideshow comedy act, they were really well done. Now, a guy who I should have had the episode um, 
up, and let me pull it up for you, but a guy who kind of had a similar gimmick back in the day. Um, he was corny, he was campy, and kids liked him, uh, was Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Now, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, we had on the show, and I'm trying to pull up right now the exact number of episode, number episode 15, if you want to go watch Hacksaw back in the archives right now. Hacksaw Jim Duggan joined us on episode 15 of Going Ringside, and he even brought up working with the Bushwhackers. And it just kind of shows that the fans just loved them. Here's a quick clip from episode 15 of Going Ringside with Hacksaw Jim Duggan on the Bushwhackers. You know, it's more than ring work. You know, me and the Whackers, the Bushwhackers, opened up Wembley Stadium with the Nasty Boys in the Mountie. And of course, we're opening up the big show, 80,000, 90,000 people over in London and Wembley Stadium. And everybody's like, well, you got to really kick off the show. Really kick off the show. You want a good match, kick off the show. So anyway, we get out there, the place is rocking. Luke would go to one corner and go, yo! But you'd go to the other corner and go, yay! I'd go to the other corner and go, ho! We did 10 minutes without touching. That whole place was just, oh, yeah. I was always surprised how well the Bushwhackers were received. I remember WWF sent them to the White House Easter egg roll as the brand ambassadors for the president. The Bushwhackers were really over. Yeah, yeah, everybody, that was the golden age. I mean, try to think of a football player or a basketball player from the 80s. I mean, maybe one or two. Hogan, Macho, Warrior, Jake the Snake, Junkyard Dog, Andre the Giant. It's the golden age. It was like uh, Gary Cooper, Jimmy Stewart, just a moment in time. I mean, even Coco Beware, just up and down the card, Bret Hart. It's, and I was just glad to be part of it. Episode 15, once again, a going ringside. But uh, the Bushwhackers' time in WWF was not their only time. I mean, they were a very accomplished, world-known tag team before they came to the WWF. As I said at the beginning of the show, they started out as the Kiwis um, in New Zealand and then started wrestling all over the world. Um, and they, I first remember them as a child, seeing them on NWA World Championship Wrestling on WTBS on Saturday afternoons. They brought them in as the sheep herders, much different characters. They were like these brawlers. They were hardcore brawlers. They'd fight anyone, and they were not really appealing to kids at that point. Vince McMahon, made that pivot for them. But they were a very accomplished tag team um, before they ever showed up in WWF as the Sheep Herders. They stayed together for all these years, traveling the world as a tag team before they finally became iconic when they showed up in WWF. And they've been wrestling ever since. Sadly, earlier this year, uh, Butch Miller passed away. Um, Luke Williams is still with us. He's in his latter half of his 70s and still doing great. Does a lot of conventions. We met up with him at the River City Wrestling Con convention here in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, and just talked to him. Great guy. Uh, we talked to him about the sad passing of Butch. We talked to him about them coming up. And you'll want to hear what they had to say about what really happened at the White House. Um, but here's our interview with Luke Williams about the life and times of that crazy team, the Bushwhackers. Well, we're excited to be joined now by Bushwhacker Luke, a legend in the business. Luke, thanks for joining us today. Great to be here, Scott, on Channel 4, Jacksonville. <laughs> and, and amongst all my old friends at River City Wrestling Con. Tell me about your life. Uh, when did you start? 1962, mate. 
Started in 1962. I've been in this business for seven decades. And I, and I can feel it too, mate. My <laughs> God. So did you start down in New Zealand or the Certainly US? Certainly did. I started in New Zealand working for a New Zealand promoter. And then and I was flying over to 65, Jim Barnett bought a WCW to Sydney, Australia, or to completely to Australia. I started flying over there and working for Jim Barnett. And I come over to this side of the world in 72. And you eventually crossed paths with uh, Butch. Butch, yeah. No, Butch, Butch started with me in 66. And we became a tag team partner. And, and uh, there's a lot of stories of me and Butch. Andre the Giant, um, Gene Faree comes to New Zealand in 69, well before he comes to North America. And Butch and me worked handicap matches around New Zealand with him. He was with, seven, on, foot with four, Andre? seven foot four and 350 pound man. He could drop kick. He could drop. He was a seven foot four guy who could drop kick. Drop kick, yeah, Andre. What did it feel like when Andre drop kicked you? Yeah, you certainly went down. And so he had one foot on my chest, one foot on Butch's chest. Everything was double. What would, handicap, so, handicap so Andre would sit on both of you? Yeah, he'd sit on both of us. I've got photos on my phone of him with both of us and in a body scissors. He's, we're all sitting on our ass, and he's got his legs around the both of us. Andre the Giant had both of you trapped between his legs. Yeah, and, a, and body scissors. A lot of different things happened back then, and it was great, too. When we come over here to North America, we came to a company called Grand Prix in Montreal, and Andre had come there about a year before us. Being a Frenchman, he came to a French part of Canada, and that was uh, was owned by the two Vachons at the time, Morris Vachon and Butcher Vachon, or Mad Dog Vachon. I remember Mad Dog Vachon. Yeah. So uh, you eventually call yourselves the Sheep Herders, right? Yeah, at that time we were the Kiwis, the New Zealand Kiwis, but no one knew what a Kiwi was. Kiwis are New Zealanders. That's their nickname for New Zealanders. So um, eventually we changed to the sheep herders. Two to uh, three million people in the country and 100 million sheep. <laughs> you that's got why, a lot of sheep. All, hey, Scott, that's why all the guys have got a smile on their face. <laughs> so you, when eventually do you come? Because I remember as a kid seeing you in WCW when the sheep herders came. You were known for being brutal. Yes, we were we were hardcore before hard hardcore became a name brand, mate. We we were doing in the 70s. We were doing uh, chain matches, uh, no ladder matches, tables and chairs, and that fire matches, barbed wire matches, all that sort of stuff from the late 70s onwards. So did did ECW and the hardcore like Mick Foley and stuff? Did they get that idea from you guys? I don't know whether they did or not, but we were doing it well before that office was even thought of. Really. What was that like to be in those early things with like flames and barbed wire, stuff well, like that? We didn't care, mate. We were two young kids from New Zealand full of piss and vinegar. And, uh, and um, we just liked to see those houses full. And these gimmick matches at that time were sellouts everywhere. We worked from, from um, right up the top of Oregon, you know, Vancouver. We worked right across Canada in the, in the, uh, early 70s and then come into the states and we worked right down as far as Colombia and South America, Venezuela, uh, Panama and uh, 
Trinidad, Barbados, Jamaica, Puerto Rico, and then when we were with Vince, we worked all around the world. So when did the, whoa, yay, when did that start? That started when we went to Vince McMahon. When we were villains for NWA, you know, crocket out of um, Atlanta. Charlotte, yeah. Charlotte, Charlotte and Atlanta. Every time we went out the ring, we'd try to scare the people by going, wow. And that, and one of us would do EA, but that was to scare the people. And Butch said to me, let's turn it around. Let's march to the ring and swing our arms up in a marching. And I said, Butch, my shoulders are screwed up. I can't do it. And he put his nose to my nose and he says, Luke, do you want to make money? <laughs> Hence, the bloody marching to the ring happened. And uh, next minute, all the stadiums, when we come out of the, the, uh, the curtain or the stage and come to the fans, all the fans were marching with us. So it was great to see. And even when you watch Saturday, the football, Saturday football, NFL, when they went over the uh, end zone, the guys were doing the uh, the march there. They were still doing it in the end zone of the yeah, NFL yeah, games. And that was in the uh, that was in the 80s. So you guys kind of became uh, kind of with Duggan, kind of like the corny guys, but you were incredibly over. All the kids knew yes. you. You were big with the kids. Yeah, and and the grandparents too. They loved us too. And so. It got so much that I saw you at a White House Easter egg roll at a brand <laughs> ambassador in the Clinton administration That's for right. the WWF. Now, this is one thing. A guy was walking around with a Clinton's cat, cat on a leash, and Butch picked the cat up and gave it a lick, uh, a kiss, and that's what we all said. Butch was the only one to kiss Clinton's <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. That, uh, yeah. yeah, anyhow, that's it. He actually licked the cat. He licked the cat. So, um, what could you believe how over you guys were? Because when you're the sheep herders, you're going around, you're this hardcore kind of in sold out shows. Yeah. But when you're with Vince McMahon, you become nationally, hugely, globally famous. We went from NWA, you were a wrestler. When you went to WWE, you became a celebrity. And that's where it was a big difference. He put you on different shows like Regis and Fullman. He put you on Personality Squares. We we were on that show with Steve Urkel. And just, I you remember know, you were on Family yeah, Matters. Yeah, we, we did a lot of little cameo appearances and, and different shows. And we were in Sportsman of the, of the Year dinners all over the country and toy toy um, conventions. And that, so he was putting into, us into a different, meeting a different realm of people, you know what I mean? Which he was trying to bring into the wrestling universe. I gotta ask, what everyone talks about behind your back is the licking of the children when you went to the ring. You would get those kids and you would lick them on the head. What was with that? No, well, the butch started that up. If you notice on that, I always grabbed them by the ha head and licked the back of my hand. But, uh, you know, that was funny that, that, that uh, the people caught on to that. So on the way to the ring, they'd all put their head over the rail, wanting us to lick their heads. It, it, was, it got out of hand there. You know, that was, they all wanted to get a lick. Crazy. All ages wanted it. It all was crazy. Yeah. So hey, we couldn't, couldn't do it today, mate. They'd say there'd be a new variant out, the Wacker variant, COVID Wacker variant. You don't want a COVID Wacker variant. So. Luke, we lost Luke, or uh, excuse me, Butch, a few years ago. No, we lost him um, two months ago. He came up, flew up from New Zealand to L.A., which is a, a straight shot, 
in April this year, the end of March, for WrestleMania in um, in Los Angeles, and um, he stopped taking a pill, a water pill, because he, he didn't want to get up and down from signing. And he stopped it for four days, the water went round his lungs, and then went to his heart. And that's a lesson to all you people out there. If you're on medication, especially for the heart, keep taking that medication. Because look what happened to my partner. Yeah. Very sad. Any uh, wrestlers you have good memories with, good matches, back vaccine stories? A lot of uh, good wrestlers. Even um, we're talking about um, Andre the Giant. A lot of matches with him, Rowdy Roddy Pipe and Rick Martell, Abdullah the Butcher. I know here's, here's some people that I wrestled that people, Stu Hart, the Hart, you know, uh, Bret Hart's dad, Butcher Me wrestled him. Peter Malvia, High Chief Peter Malvia, The Rock's grandfather. We wrestled him in New Zealand and Australia. Rocky Johnson, The Rock's dad. I wrestled him all over the world, and I was with him three weeks before he passed. So you knew you knew The Rock pretty well. What was it like? The son, the son was in New Zealand in school when he was seven years of age. Now I was already over here, but I flew home to do television there, and that's when I saw The Rock. He was like that with an afro. Look at him, look, it's tall and skinny. Look at him now. Yeah. What about uh, Bret Hart? Any memories of Bret Hart? Oh, yeah. yeah Bret, is, Bret was, uh, Abdullah threw Bret into the ring when we were working there in 1972, in Stampede Wrestling in Canada, that um, had to put the boot to him, and Bret was about 12 or 13 then. You put the boots in when he was that young? Well, Abdullah threw him in. Oh, Abdullah threw the him four, in. The four kids, four of the hard kids, were selling programs around the ring. And Abdullah grabbed them and threw them in and said, put the boot to them. We didn't, need, we didn't know who they were, but we knew Abdullah. You know what I mean? So we just put the boot to the kids. It wasn't until we got out of the ring and went towards the dressing room that this guy stopped us, who we'd never met before. This was our... This was our first day in the territory, Stampede Wrestling, and it was too hard. And he said, what the F are you doing to my kids? And that's when we knew who they were. Why do you still do it after all these years? Hey, it's in my blood, I guess. You know, I think now, you know, I owned a gym for nine years, just recently up to 2000, uh, 2020. You know, and I try to keep um, moving. If I stop moving, I think that's going to be my downhill, you know. You've got to keep in action, and I've, I've been, I love wrestling. I don't go out and bump like everyone else. I go out and entertain the people, you know what I mean? Get the people to stand up and cheer and all that sort of stuff. Well, Bushwhacker Luke, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Scott. Can, can I do a woe? What, do I do the woe or do you do the yay? I'll do the woe and you do the yay. Okay. Okay, folks. Keep tuned into Channel 4 Jacksonville for more. Wow! Yay! Perfect. Thanks, Luke. Love you guys. So that was our conversation with Bushwhacker Luke. So we were so glad he could join us. Uh, it was just a fun conversation. They are an incredible story of what you can do if you can find a target and a market and get yourself over. You can go incredibly far. So uh, it was just fun to sit down and talk with them about, the, I mean, Bushwhacker Luke has been wrestling in seven separate decades. That's, I mean, he still wrestles to this day. Uh, it's just fascinating, of course, what he said about Bushwhacker Butch, um, 
passing away was sad. Um, so just glad that we could sit down and, and pick his brain about the history of this iconic tag team that has just been around for, for decades and decades and decades, like predating Andre the Giant. I mean, it's just incredible um, what they did. And talking about their time with Andre um, in, in New Zealand and down under, just, just a fun conversation. But I need to go from the past to the future on this episode, and we got to talk about John Cena. Um, John Cena is kind of in flux right now, and there's been a lot of talk, as I showed you at the top of the show, what's going to happen with John Cena, because he got brutalized at Crown Jewel by Solo Sokoa, um, and a lot of talk that he's just going back to Hollywood. The writer's strike is over. Um, or about to end. The writer's strike is over, but the, the, SAG, the SAG strike, which is the actors, that's about to end by all accounts. Um, so when it officially does, he can go back to Hollywood, start acting again, doesn't necessarily need wrestling. So there's a lot of talk that did he have his final match? And that's a big deal because John Cena has been such an icon for the company. So I brought in some of our producers here at Going Ringside to sit and discuss what happened with John Cena at Crown Jewel and what happens with him going forward? Let's get to it. So let's get to it. Let's talk about John Cena's future. Joined now by our producers here at Going Ringside, Jason Mealy and Roy Thompson. Gentlemen, let's get to it. Jason, I'll start with you. What do you take away from how Cena departed there at Crown Jewel? Were you surprised by that? No, because it's it's been well documented that uh, he would probably go back to Hollywood once the uh, actor strike was over with. Now, it's still going on, but it was documented that, that was going to happen. I, I think this run was meant to be a short-time run just to bring in, pop the ratings for WWE. But here's probably going to be his challenge moving forward is how does Hollywood accept him back? He took a job, a non-union job, while the strike was going on. And do you now think he's they care, go back. though? It's wrestling. They they do care. Because do. If, you remember a few, if you remember a few years ago, when Zelina Vega got released, she was leading an effort to try to get the wrestlers unionized. And at the time, the actors' union was very interested in getting those guys in the WWE in. So he might have a problem moving forward with the actors' union. Unions don't look too kindly to people who do things outside of outside of the union. Just on that, I think that is good. I think he'll be good with the Actors Union. Um, I'm pretty sure his team, like, looked into this beforehand to see if, like, he could do this because, I mean, the actors are very, uh, you know, they have a lot of rules of what they can and can't do. There was a whole thing about Halloween costumes, and they said he can't do it if it's, a you know, based on a movie or something of a uh, company that they were striking against. So I think he should be good. Um, I think, I, I do think that they're going to try to figure out something about, like, getting those wrestlers unionized. But, uh, you know, Vince McMahon was very anti-union when it came to wrestlers. And I think that if they did have a union, a lot of things would change. So, I mean, we should see. I think John Cena is too valuable to Hollywood for him to get any kind of penalties. Um, well, before we go forward to yeah. Hollywood, I'm going to interrupt and back up a second, Rory. The Solo Sokoa match at Crown Jewel, that was brutal. Some say the worst beatdown scene is seen since, uh, I think, Lesnar in 2014. You watched it. It was a brutal beatdown, it looked like. Were you surprised at that? 
Um, I'm not surprised. Um, I kind of made a joke on Twitter about how, like, he needs to stop fighting Samoans because every time he fights a Samoan, he gets beat up. Uh, so I think that it's going to be interesting to see, like, how he, how John Cena, the wrestler, you know, comes out for this. Um, a lot of people saying this might be his last wrestling match um, ever. So, I mean, it's crazy. I think it really helped Solo's character because Solo's character has kind of just been like a henchman for Roman. So this kind of gave him that edge. I mean, I think it put him over, honestly. I do think that Solo is a future champion. So hopefully that this match helped his character grow. Jason, do you think it's a retirement? I mean, Sasina's in his latter half of his 40s. Obviously, he's getting up there in age and doesn't want to put his body... He doesn't have to put his body through this, but he loves wrestling. Do you think he'll come back? I mean, could he take a break? Maybe show back up at Mania? I mean, he might show back up. I mean, every once in a while, they, they, they're they constantly bringing these guys in to you know get a ratings pop. I mean, I could see him coming back for something like that, but as a full-time, no. And kind of... I don't know why WWE didn't pull the trigger and go ahead and make him a 17-time champion. They always refer to him as the greatest of all time. Yeah, Flair is no longer with the company. Do they do that out of respect to Ric Flair? And well, know, they, why, they, they may now that Flair's in AEW, they might want to insult him and put Cena yeah. over a 17th time. And they could have easily gone with him being the 17-time champion, and, and they didn't, so... Maybe that's kind of something is saying. So was he back in the first place just because of the strike? Is that why he was even here, Rory? Yeah, no, I, I I believe so because it just he he stated um, during I forgot which pay per view it was. It was the last pay per view where he had the interview. Um, I I'm blinking out on the name. It was payback. Payback. He basically okay. said he was in the middle of a movie, like he was shooting a movie when the strike happened. So I don't think that he would have came back at all unless the strike happened. Um, I mean, he probably would have came back, I don't know, like in a few months, maybe a year or so, just to have a little feud. But I don't think that this would have happened without the strike. Jason, if he comes back at Mania, is there a reasonable feud for him or not really? I I hope not. Uh, He came back at Mania last year and wasn't a good match with Austin Theory. Mm-hmm. And you know, the whole time on a tradition of you put the new guy over on your way out, he didn't make Austin Theory look good at all in the last Mania. Rory, do you think he'd be back for Mania, or do you think not? He may be gone not, a while. Not this Mania. Uh, like like uh, Jason just said, there's no feud. I mean, of course, the bloodline, he kind of just did that feud. I don't really see a reason for him to fight Roman Reigns at WrestleMania, we all know it's Rome, Roman Reigns and Cody Rhodes. However, I do think that in the next couple of years, he might come back. Maybe it's a retirement match against somebody new, um, or maybe they pull the trigger and do Rock Cena again and make it like, a, you know, the final match of their careers. I think that would be a pretty cool feud to do, like yeah. a, a retirement match for both of them. I just don't know what they're going to do. I don't think John Cena is going to have time over the next two, three years. I mean, once all these movies get back into production, he's going to be in Peacemaker. Who knows what DC stuff he's going to have. You know, he had the, he does all these different movies. So I don't really see John Cena coming back to WWE for the next two, three years. Well, final thought, Jason, the beatdown that he received at the hands of Solo Sokoa, do you think that was 
pretty much kind of a, a figurative dagger on him coming back anytime soon. I do. Yeah. It's the way to go out of a company. And you see that quite often when, uh, when someone is leaving, they get that type of beat down to sell the injury that he can't go anymore. Gentlemen, thank you. We'll talk to you next week. So it's really interesting to see what happens with Cena. I mean, I've seen a lot of people say it's his retirement match. It's hard to believe it'd be at Crown Jewel, and a lot of people think it would be at a WrestleMania. So we'll have to see. I've seen Cena's got some uh, acting stuff lined up, so he's probably going to be tied up for quite a while. He's also in the latter half of his 40s, I believe, so I don't know that he'd want to um, return to active wrestling ever. I mean, once he got to a certain point, he has no financial... I mean, I don't know exactly what he has, but I'm assuming he's financially well off for the rest of his life. Even though he loves wrestling, he may it may be behind him now. We will we will have to watch. He he's been kind of like The Rock, where he show up every few years, do a a quick run, and that's it. Maybe re-energize the fan base at some point. Um, but eventually, age plays a role too. And if you don't have to do it, if you're bigger than wrestling. You're bigger than wrestling. So we'll have to see what happens with Mr. Cena going forward. But that's kind of where we're at right now. I want to uh, thank you for joining us. Once again, please continue to spread the word about the show. Um, also give us a follow at, at Going Ringside TikTok and Instagram. And uh, tell people about this episode on the Bushwhackers. I thought uh, Bushwhacker Luke had some very interesting stuff to tell us. So thanks for joining us. We'll see you back here next time on Going Ringside. This has been Going Ringside with The Local Station, brought to you every Wednesday on your favorite podcast player, on News 4 Jax Plus, as well as the News 4 Jax YouTube channel.